This morning, then, we considered our inheritance from Adam's fall, the corruption of his whole nature or original sin, which we talked about last week. And then this morning, the guilt of Adam's first sin by our participation in that sin through our union with Adam as one, if you will, uh, an organic or a living union uh, that we have with Adam similar to that which we have with Christ. But in short, we receive the guilt of his sin as if we had personally committed it through that union. As if we were the body of which he was the head or we were the branch of which he was the root. His sin is our sin. But we said there was a second way, a very important way, in which we received the guilt of Adam's first sin, and that was by imputation. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 5, in this chapter, Paul has been describing in the first 11 verses the substitutionary atonement of Christ, how Christ stood in the place of sinners when he died for sin. And so, in verse 12, he begins to answer an objection. And his objection is, that he's answering, is is very simple. It's, how is it right, how is it right for one man to stand in the place of many people? Well, conveniently for us and for our purposes, Paul answers that question by using a historical example that any Jew should have understood, which was, he goes to the fall of Adam, essentially saying if it was, if it was just and right for God to impute the guilt of Adam's sin to all of mankind, then it is just and right for God to impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to all of those whom he saves. And so he begins in verse 12 and he says, For this reason, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and through sin death entered, even so death passed upon all men because all have sinned. And now he makes a little digression about how sin issues in death. He says, Now sin, sin was in the world before the law, the law of Moses, was given. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. But death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's transgression, who was a type, Adam was a type, of the coming one, the Messiah. He's making this argument that that if death reigned and sin was in the world before the giving of the law of Moses, then there must have been a law before the law of Moses. Because sin is not imputed where there's no law. If there's no law, you can't sin. And then he turns to the likeness between Adam and Christ. But the free gift shall not be like the offense. For if by the transgression of one man many died, much more than the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, will abound to the many. And the gift shall not be as through one sin, for judgment was indeed from one sin to condemnation. But the free gift is from many trespasses to justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall rule in life through the one man Jesus Christ. 
So then, just as through one man the transgression was as to all men unto condemnation, so also through one man the righteousness is as to all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were constituted or made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be constituted or made righteous. Now, this is like a refrain in this passage. It's like over and over. I mean, he's like hitting you in the head. I mean, if you can't get this passage, you can't get anything in the Bible. By one man, condemnation came, sin came, death reigned by one man. And by one man, justification unto righteousness. So we have then this concept of the guilt and consequences of Adam's sin imputed to us. Now, this is a completely unpopular idea today. Both ideas, actually both this morning's idea of us participating in Adam's sin through our union, organic union within living union, and also this idea of Adam's sin being imputed to us. It is unpopular with Arminianism because it overturns all of the presuppositions of Arminianism as regards the work of Christ. It is unpopular with dispensationalism because it is the foundation of what we call covenant theology, which we'll come to, and dispensationalism has completely confused that whole idea. And it is even unpopular with political conservatives because they object to the, the, the basic fundamental concept that you might be responsible for someone else's sin. I read recently, uh, it was just several months ago, I happened to pick up A New American, which is a production of the John Birch Society, and they were taking the Pope to task because the Pope was apologizing He's been apologizing a lot lately, but I think one of, I believe this particular incident was apologizing for how the Roman Catholic Church treated the Jews during the Holocaust. And the comment was not to question the sincerity of the Pope's apology or anything, a legitimate line of investigation. Rather, what they said was that the Pope was giving in to socialism by implying that uh, you might be responsible for somebody else's sin. And they went on uh, angrily berating the Pope for embracing this concept. Now, I must say that it is not surprising, given the fact that the John Birch Society was founded by a Unitarian, John Welsh. And Unitarianism also rejects this theory. In fact, Unitarianism just flat out rejects the Gospel, but it fits nicely with contemporary political conservative thought because it says you're responsible for your own good deeds and your own bad deeds. And if you go to heaven, it's because of your own good deeds. And if you go to hell, it's because of your own bad deeds. And that's the end of the discussion. You won't go to hell because of somebody else's bad deeds and you won't go to heaven because of somebody else's good deeds. So they don't like it either. So nobody likes this idea. This poor despised doctrine on which the whole gospel turns. 
So let's give ourselves a definition to start with so we can understand this. Adam related to God not only by way of nature, I'll come back to this, but by way of covenant. In this covenant or legal arrangement, Adam was appointed to act as the representative of all mankind. So when Adam sinned, he did not sin only for himself, but as the legal representative of all mankind. And when Adam fell, he did not fall only for himself, but as the legal representative of all mankind. And so the guilt of his sin and the punishment, the legal consequences of that sin fell not only on himself, but on all mankind, which he represented. And that is the doctrine of imputation. Now this definition that I've given you is the cornerstone of what you will see referred to as federal theology or covenant theology. It is the backbone of every historic Reformed Confession of Faith, including our own 1689 Confession. Now, because this is probably new and somewhat unfamiliar, we'll take a look at it item by item, our definition. Now, we said that Adam did relate to God by way of nature. I've talked about that in a previous message, but let me just review it so we're on the same page. God was, uh, Adam was created by God. So, without any superimposition, any putting in place of any other arrangement, he had, a, he had a natural relationship to God, creator, creature. And while Adam stood, he had fellowship with God, and he had a living union with God, and, and he had life, not as a reward for his good works, but as the blessing that resulted from being in union, in living union with God. And so when Adam sinned, it resulted in death as, if you will, a natural consequence. It's like if you slit your wrists, you will bleed to death. If Adam sins, he will die. But it's not, in that perspective, judicial. It's not a matter of breaking of law and punishment. It's, it's just like a natural thing. You, you, you destroy your union with God and you cut off the flow of life and so you die. So Adam related to God by way of nature. But it doesn't stop there. Superimposed on top of this is, if you will, a legal relationship. It's what we call a covenant. Now what is a covenant? It's not a word we particularly use today unless you happen to be in real estate. Now, sometimes a covenant in the scriptures are a contract, what we would call a contract between equals. Uh, in the scriptures, it is a contract made with God called as the witness and the enforcer of the contract. Um, Abraham and Abimelech get in the dispute over the well at Beersheba in Genesis 21, and they make a covenant. And, uh, and, and they basically call God to witness that, that they aren't going to do wrong to any, each other and they make a deal, an arrangement, and God is the witness of it. Uh, Isaac and Abimelech 
subsequently in Genesis 26 have what you would call a no-harm clause. They, they call into existence a covenant in which they promise not to harm each other or each other's property with God as witness and enforcer of the contract. They're not going to go before the judge. They're not going to go to the court. God is the witness and the enforcer of their covenant, of their agreement. And Jacob and Laban do the same thing in Genesis 31 after he finally gets his wives and moves out. They, they make a covenant with God as witness not to do harm to each other. So sometimes a covenant in Scripture is a contract. Two parties enter into it equally with God as the judge and the enforcer. But that's not this covenant. Sometimes a covenant is an absolute promise that God makes. Genesis 3.15 happens to be a covenant. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Genesis 9.11 is a good example. I will establish my covenant with you. This is after the flood. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And he'll give the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. See, it doesn't matter. I mean, mankind can become wicked again. Mankind can, and mankind did, can become vile. Noah can do anything he wants. God will not destroy the earth again by a flood. That's his covenant. He's establishing it. It's his absolute promise. Genesis 22:18 and your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed he says to Abram the, the the Abrahamic covenant it's an absolute promise of God and finally and perhaps most importantly for us Jeremiah 31:31 31, 31, behold the days come that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers which they broke but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant. Absolute promise. God declaring what he will do. And no one's going to stop him from doing it. We might call these covenants, in fact, we ought to call them, covenants of grace. In fact, each one of those happens to be in the progress of the covenant of grace by which we are saved, but that's a whole another 20 sermon message. So we won't go there. Then there is a third kind. It keeps cropping up in the scriptures. It's what we can call the covenant of of the law. Now we're accustomed to thinking of the law in many ways, the transcript of God's holy character, the description of who God is and what he's like, uh, uh, the, 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 the instruction in righteousness as to, as to uh, uh, how God would have us to be. We think of it this way. But in the Bible, the law is given in a very specific form. It is given as a covenant. Now, in this kind of covenant, covenant of the law, you have a legal arrangement in which there are, big word following, stipulations, what we would call commands, requirements, conditions. 
And for those who fulfill the stipulations, the requirements, the conditions, what we would call covenant keepers, there is a reward promised. Chiefly the reward of life and every good thing. And for those who fail to fulfill the conditions, covenant breakers, there are sanctions or penalties that are imposed. Chiefly, death. Adam's covenant was the covenant of the law. The Mosaic covenant, also called the Old Covenant, is the second statement and expansion of the covenant of the law with some particular applications to the nation of Israel. And in point of fact, every person who is outside of Christ is attempting to relate to God through this covenant. We'll come to that. But I warn you, if you die attempting to relate to God under that covenant, you die under its stipulations and its sanctions. Now this covenant, when it was given to Adam, is sometimes called the covenant of works. That's an unfortunate title, even though it made it into our confession of faith. It's a Puritan thing. Um, It's elsewhere called covenant of nature, the covenant of creation. And in its stripped down form, it reads like this. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat from every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat fruit from the tree of the knowing of good and evil, for if you eat from that tree, you will die the very same day. That's a very tiny summarized version of what was really going on, but that's the nature of the book of Genesis. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a covenant. Well, Hosea 6-7 has something interesting to say. It says, but they, talking about Israel, they, like Adam, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. See, they couldn't, Adam couldn't have transgressed in one sense the Mosaic covenant because it was, you know, thousands of years off. Adam transgressed his covenant, which was the same covenant in, in form. Now, this covenant had two parties, two uh, uh, people who were involved in the legal arrangement. There was the triune God, and there was Adam as the legal representative of his entire posterity. Now, understand... Adam and God didn't negotiate this. God sovereignly placed it into being because that is his right as the creator and as the sovereign king. But in this situation, Adam was acting as the legal representative of his whole posterity. So his actions determined not only his success and failure, but our success or failure. Just as through one man the transgression was as to all men unto condemnation. His actions not merely affected our fate, they controlled it apart from any choice, apart from any input, apart from any participation, and apart from any resolve of your or my own one way or the other. 
That's unfair. I object. I never agreed to be part of that. Well, first of all, can I point out to you that this concept is understood even by the natural man? I mean, parents can act as the legal representatives of their children and engage in contracts which bind them. The whole theory of representative government in this country and in any other that has it is built on the legitimacy of this idea that elected officials can legally act within the laws, within the stipulations of the national covenant, they can legally act in the name of the people, even in the name of those who voted against them. For example, in the forming of treaties. As long as everything is done in accordance with the stipulations of the legal covenant governing the nation. Israel, when they were under the law as a covenant, was in fact uh, governed by this theory to the point that God would hold the whole nation accountable for the sins of a single ruler. You say, well, that's not fair. I'll give you a couple examples. Eli, 1 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. Eli judged Israel. He governed Israel. This is before the kings. He governed Israel for 40 years. His sons were the priests, the high priests, and they defiled the temple of God with extreme wickedness. Now, God judges Eli and he judges his household. And in fact, he judges Eli's household to eternity. He says, 1 Samuel 3.12, In that day I will perform against Eli everything which I have spoken. When I begin, I will make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice or offering forever. So, there we have Eli and his sons and their actions affecting his entire posterity. But, that's not all. Eli was the judge of Israel. And so, in 1 Samuel 4, because of Eli and his sons' sins, the Philistines came and they fought against Israel and there was a very great slaughter. And 30 4,000 people were killed. The ark of God was taken and Eli's sons were slain and when Eli heard of it, he fell off of his bench and dropped dead. David, king of Israel, determines to number the people and conduct a census. And God becomes very angry. And does he judge David? Yes. But he judges the entire nation. Because the prophet comes and gives him three choices. Seven years of famine. Three months of David fleeing before his enemies, which would have meant the disruption of the government and the attack on Israel by a foreign nation. Or three days of plague. David picks the three days of plague. So the Lord sent the pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. 
And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. What did they have to do? What did they have to do with David determining to conduct a census? But under the principle by which the nation of Israel was run, which is the same principle by which Adam's headship, legal representation, was set up, the head stood as the representative for the people. Now in Adam's covenant, there were stipulations the one we read of specifically, the commandment, you may freely eat from every tree in the garden, but you shall not eat from the tree of the knowing of good and evil. Now, please do not misunderstand and think that God gave Adam one commandment. Adam could do anything he wanted to, anything he wanted to, except not eat of that tree. That's not it at all. Adam was actually under the entire law as it existed in the Garden of Eden. Of course, there were many things that would come later in the law that, that, that didn't exist. But obviously Adam was not free to have pride, to covet, to rebel, to do anything. I mean, he was under the entire law. And this is just a, if you will, a test case, a a probationary command. It's a specific, but it's a summary. Adam was actually obligated to obey God perfectly, perpetually, and personally. Perfectly, without exception. Every command of God he had to obey. Intensively, to the fullest degree. No holding back. As much as a human being could obey, that's how much he had to obey. Perpetually, all the time, to the very end of his probationary period where we assume he would have been given the right to eat the fruit of the tree of life and would have gained eternal life. And personally, no one could do it for him. And all it would take is one mistake. Because whosoever shall keep the entire law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. James 2.10 How is that possible? That is covenant language. One offense triggers all of the sanctions. Finally, there were rewards and penalties in Adam's covenant. Life, we said, the continuation of his current condition and the right to the tree of life to eat and live forever eventually. Or death. If you eat from that tree, you will die the very same day. And of course, we considered last week the extraordinarily profound nature of the death that Adam experienced. Now, this covenant was stated again. It was stated again Uh, after Israel was taken from the land of Egypt by Moses under the supervision of God to the Mount Sinai in Horeb. And there God made a covenant with Israel. He made it with the nation of Israel as one legal covenant Entity. So it included not only every individual and household, 
but every individual and household that would ever be a part of the nation of Israel as long as that covenant stood. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, meaning Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, but with us, even us who are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mountain out of the midst of the fire. You should read the entire book of Deuteronomy uh, because you will find in it exactly the concept that I am teaching laid out over and over and over again. Because Deuteronomy is the book of the law, absolutely, but the book of the law as a covenant. So there were parties in the Mosaic Covenant, God and the nation of Israel. There were stipulations. The whole law of God, summarized in the Ten Commandments, which interestingly is repeatedly called my covenant, which I made with you. He refers to the Ten Commandments as my covenant, which I made with you. The whole law, Deuteronomy 8.1, every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply. How many of them? A few of them? Some of them? Half of them? Every one of them. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge and His statutes and His judgments and His commandments always. Deuteronomy 11.1 Perfect obedience, perpetual obedience, and in this case, national obedience. Because there was a provision made, since it was made with the nation of Israel, that every Israelite didn't have to keep the law perfectly, but the covenant sanctions had to be applied by the nation when the law was broken. And that is, of course, something they repeatedly failed to do. Perfect, perpetual, national obedience. Now, in this restatement of the law, of course, the commandments are multiplied almost Endlessly. I forget how many commandments it is that the Jewish rabbis found in the Torah, but it's hundreds of them. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of individual commandments. And that's just taking the superficial, literal sense of them. That's not taking the real sense of the law which Jesus teaches. Every commandment, always. There's the stipulation. Now this covenant had rewards and it had penalties. And boy, were they something. Leviticus 26. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land will yield its produce. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage. You'll eat the bread to the full and dwell in the land safely. I'll give you peace. I'll rid the land of evil beasts. You'll chase your enemies and they'll fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred shall put ten thousand to flight. I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply multiply you. You'll eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I'll walk among you and be your God. Every rich blessing that you could imagine including the presence of God. If they would keep perfectly and perpetually his covenant. And if they didn't, 
If you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, I will do this to you. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which will consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You'll sow your seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I'll set my face against you. Those who hate you shall reign over you. And if after all this you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And then if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues. And if by these things you are not reformed but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you and punish you seven times more for your sins. And if after all this you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. You shall eat the flesh of your son, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols. And this goes on and on and on. You shall perish among the nations. The land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them, they shall waste away. Deuteronomy 28, towards the very end of the book, same idea. It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all of his commandments, which I command you, the Lord will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And then the blessings. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. He'll bless your storehouses. He'll establish you as a holy people. All of these marvelous blessings. And the Lord will walk with you. And I will be your God and you will be my people. If you keep my covenant. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Cursed you'll be in the city and in the country and in your basket and your kneading bowl and the fruit of your body and the produce of your land. And when you come in and when you go out, the Lord will send cursing and confusion and rebuke in all that you do. And then it's disease, consumption, inflammation, the sword, the scorching, the mildew. The heavens over your head will turn bronze and the earth under you will be, will be as iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust, famine, destruction. The enemies will destroy them. All the diseases of Egypt will come on them. A man will betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her. You build a house, but you won't live in it. You plant a vineyard, but you won't gather its grapes. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you won't eat of it. Everything, uh, your donkey will be taken away from you and won't be restored. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. Your sons and daughters will be given to another people. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And of course, what is this? This reads like the history of Israel. God makes a covenant with them. Do they keep the covenant? No. They break the covenant. What does God do? He sends the stipulations of the covenant. Each time in mercy he holds back. He holds back from the full force. And, and each time he shows mercy and he brings a remnant back and they try again. He gives them another chance over and over and over again. And each time the covenant is broken and each time the stipulations fall 
Moses says, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day. And a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after the other gods. And this curse becomes so severe curse becomes so severe that in Deuteronomy chapter 28 there is a prophecy. It's written like a stipulation. But it's a prophecy of what would actually happen. Because you did not serve the Lord with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore you will serve your enemies. Whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, thirst, nakedness. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth. As swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce countenance, and they shall eat the increase of your livestock, and it goes on, they'll take your cattle, they'll take your sheep. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your lands. And they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile towards his brother, toward the wife of his bosom and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and in the desperate straits in which your enemy will distress you the tender and the delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and her sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter she will refuse her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Now, I know you're sitting here thinking that that is extremely gross. I mean, that's unimaginable. Well, when the time came, when Jesus came, he issued a warning towards the end of his ministry. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, If we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have killed the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify. Some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Listen to this. This is covenant stipulation language. Covenant, uh, uh, Covenant sanction language. You will do this that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, as in Cain killed Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. See, the time was coming. The time was coming when the wrath of God would be filled up 
with this old covenant. And the sanctions would fall just the way He said they would fall. And Jesus, on His way to the cross, do you know what the last public ministry of Jesus is? He's on His way to the cross. He's been through the whole trial. He's been beaten and scourged. He's carrying the cross. And the women of Jerusalem come out to weep for Him. And He turns to them. And He says, Daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Because not so long after they crucified Jesus. The Roman government in 70 AD would decide that they had had enough of the continuous political rebellions of this small backwater nation that was on the edge of their provinces which annoyed them like a fly and so they would send thousands of troops to the city of Jerusalem And they encamped around Jerusalem and they shut off every gate. And they made war with them and they slew man and woman and child and famine came into the city. And Josephus says, Josephus the great Jewish historian, says that women ate their own children. The judgment of God the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, which was the relic, the icon of the Old Covenant. Everything the system represented would be destroyed by a nation whose language they did not speak. And so the covenant sanctions of God surely and swiftly fell in that day. Now, the law continued as a covenant. Well, before we get to that, we'll say that Jesus came himself under this covenant. Because it says in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What does that mean, under the law? It means under the stipulations of the law and under the sanctions of the law. And so Jesus came under the covenant of the law and what did he do? He rendered perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. So that what Adam could not do through weakness of the flesh, Jesus did. The covenant which Adam broke, Jesus fulfilled. The covenant which Israel failed, the true Israel of God, the only Son of God, succeeded. And so, whereby Adam, whereby Adam, one man, sin entered into the world, one man, 
by the transgression many died one man judgment was from one sin to condemnation one man death reigned one man the transgression was to all condemnation by that same covenant by one man would be righteousness of life 